Chrome. Hello, Alexander. Okay, so today is Sunday. It's four o'clock here in Thailand time. And last week we finished up the conversation with Anna asking a question about the self and what is the self? Uh, and is there not a self or is it a not self? Then in fact, we can go so far as to say, do I perceive self with self? Do I perceive not self with self? Do I perceive not self with self? Or do I perceive not self with not self? Because these are the kind of questions that they were asking back in the time of the Buddha. What is the self? But the other quality is, is that we're actually using the wrong word that's badly translated. The actual word that we should be looking at is the word soul, not self. Why? Because the word self is very complicated. It's got very many different uses. And when we try to pack all of the various definitions of, and the way that the word self is, pack it into a tight little ball so that we can examine that, then we're missing kind of the, the, the point that everything is loosey-goosey but that we can in fact tie things down a little bit by changing the language a bit. And last time we talked about selfishness because that's a good indication that we don't have to talk about is there a noun, a self that exists, but what we can talk about is the process of selfishness that's based in fear and desire, ignorance, okay? That's what we mean by selfishness, and that um, the selfishness can exist, but the one who is doing the selfishness may or may not exist. In the Vasudhimagga, it's expressed in the sense that uh, there is walking, but there no walker be. There's just walking. Okay, so we can in fact see it as there is selfishness from time to time, depending upon the circumstances, depending upon what we make of it. Then in fact, a way of saying it is, is that we become selfish when we want to be. It's our choice to become selfish. And we do often because we think we need protection. That that's what the self-preservation instinct is. It's based in fear. So you could say basically the only time that we're ever going to get selfish is when we're afraid to lose something like life or limb or face or whatever it is that we're afraid of losing. That's when we get really selfish about it. Did you say face? Face, yes. Losing yeah. face. <laughs> They do that in Asia. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so let's go back and look at them. The, the original question is what is the self is basically a wrong kind of question to ask based upon Western viewpoints and knowledge. 
And and I would suspect, though I don't have any clue about it, that the original Christian translators who were translating out of the Pali into the English without a lot of help from any of the Sri Lankans or the Burmese or anybody else, they were just helping their own trying to do it, is why they made that mistake and used the word self rather than the word uh, soul, which is more of what the Atta is. In fact, you've heard of Mahatma Gandhi. Well, there's the Maha-Atta. There's the great soul. That's the word. So Anatta then is the Buddha making the statement that there is no soul. So let's now define what the word soul means, because we can get a little bit closer to what's going on. Because soul means kind of unitary, unique, special. And also, in this sense, alive. And the this, this soul then, actually the word uh, um, atta, comes from or is closely aligned with the Greek word that we already have, which is used in the word atmosphere. It's the thing that surrounds us, the Atta, the great Atta. Because this is, you know, thinking that was done 2,500, maybe 3,000 years ago when they didn't have any scientific equipment, but they knew enough to know that there is wind, there is air, there is breath, there is life itself that's depending upon this air. So maybe it's the air itself that is alive or alive. So the air around us then gives us life. Breath of life, they call it in some of the uh, hymns in the Christian churches. Breathe thou the breath of life, because if you don't breathe, you're dead. And so this is a great quality of importance. Now, the question then would be uh, this Atta, the great Atta, or in fact, this is probably the word that in ancient India they had for, that has been now um, over the many centuries polluted with both Islam and Christianity into having their a new word come on the block of God. But the word God is a new kid on the block. But this is an old, old concept. That in fact, when Jesus used the word Abba in the Aramaic, that Abba, we can see the word abbot of a monastery or the word above or about, which means that which surrounds us, our environment. This is the great soul. This is partly the reason why we in Anapanasati spend so much time looking at the wind coming in and out of the body, as well as the touch of the wind and the breeze upon the body. Because it's, you know, it's part of being alive. The question is, is it ordinary or is it sacred? The answer to that is we have to define new words again because it can be both sacred in in a new kind of way and not sacred in the old kind of special way, but rather sacred in the sense that your life depends upon it. It is your sanctuary. It is the breath of life within you. 
Okay, so this is where that idea of Atta came from. And the question now is, is that is there just one Atta or is each individual who is breathing in and out also a, an Atta? Now, according to uh, some literature that I've read, as well as agreement from uh, Achan Dhammavitu, that it was around 800 BC when the Brahmins were in danger of losing their um, hegemony over the land in, in India, that they came up with the idea of, oh, only we can do these sacred ceremonies because we're Brahmin, and we're Brahmin because we were born Brahmin. And we were born Brahmin because we were special from the beginning and we were good in the past. You're not Brahmin, which proves that you weren't good in the past. And here comes the whole concept of Kama coming in and along with it trails this idea of a soul. Because without a soul, what is this long lasting Kama? And that's how old it is. About 800 BC is when that got uh, into belief. And not only that, but it's got a side benefit to it. And that is, is that you can control stupid people by lying to them, telling them that we're going to get your butt for what you're doing, no matter what happens. You're going to be reborn as a, as an, a dwarf or something if you cut my knees, my knee, cut me off at the knees, you know, that kind of belief systems. And so it, it actually is quite handy for crowd control. But. The point is, is that when we translate all of this stuff into English, we've made a big mistake by using the word soul. So, I mean, the word self. But if we go back to the word soul, we'll understand that what the Buddha was teaching is, is that no one has a unique identity. That all of us are malleable, that we come with a basic programming just like every every PC is a PC. It may be made by different manufacturers or whatever like that, but it's got windows on it and you can kind of program windows any way that you want to. When you go to a foreign PC, it's so unique because the person who was using it set it up, but it's all just basic windows. It's just the way it's arranged. But we wouldn't then say a laptop is unique simply because of the variation that this particular laptop with this particular version of Windows and all the changes that have been made and what programs are running, et cetera, like that. Because that's basically what we are, that we're not a special, unique soul. Now, the other, the next problem with the word soul is, is that it is unique <laughs> in the sense that it is everlasting. It keeps going on and on. That when you die, your soul is going to be there like a football for God to kick around and he's eventually going to kick it into hell or kick it into heaven. His choice. So you got to suck up to this guy. Doesn't matter whether you follow the rules, it's whether you can suck up to him or not. All right. So that's how the whole idea of the soul. But then it comes into the problem of is that if I'm out of control and the gods are in control, that means that I'm out of control. I can't make the changes that I'm stuck with my destiny, my providence. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. It's kind of an old promise that's made and the Buddha keeps saying, oh, 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 no, 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 no. There is no such system as that. That you can take any laptop and reboot windows and come up with anything new. 
And that's what we're doing here is we're reprogramming because the, the windows that you have in your mind is not fixed. It can be changed. But if we think that, oh no, I can't change, then the best that I can do is perhaps make merit, build a temple or something so that I'll have a better lifetime, get a better kind of a PC so I can reprogram it. This is what all of that stuff about uh, uh, Amitabh, uh, Amido Buddha, Buddha of the West, Maitri, and, and the Pure Land and all of that is, why can't we have an environment that's good enough so that I can actually practice the Dhamma to the point of satisfaction? Guess what, folks? That's this life. That's now. You are in the time of the Western Buddha. We've made it easy for you. But... You have to change your attitude about it. And what is that attitude? From an I can't do it because I'm a soul and I'm fixed and I'm the way that I'm supposed to be, even though it's broken, original sin and all. Or I can change. Watch me do it. Hold my breath, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> no, oh my beard. If, <laughs> but if, I'm going if you're if you're done with that part, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the Buddha did it to survive the backlash. Actually, I because, don't think. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Because many many people who tried that died. Yes, because I of can... the reaction patterns of people. Mm hmm. Socrates, they strung Jesus up. Mm -hmm. That was because he was messing with the bankers. That was the wrong thing for him to do is to go mess with those bankers in the temple. But anyway, yeah. Uh, oh, so many. The Buddha actually was eventually poisoned, or at least that's what they want to think. We're not really quite sure about that. That's probably worth a different talk. Uh, um, the mushroom. Altogether. Well, the mushroom we, dish. We don't know whether it was mushrooms or what. They see our poly yeah, yeah. is not that good. We don't know yeah, yeah. what it was. But there are scholars who will argue one with pork and one with that. But the other thing which is more important than that is, is that when someone is poisoned, they're generally dead within 24, maybe 48 hours to where he was gone three days, maybe. And so the question would be, was that really what was going on. But anyway, back to your original question, Veda, was what was the reaction that they had was pretty ferocious. One of the backlashes was is that they accused him of being an atheist. <clears throat> and the, the expression in the Pali is, is that upon the breakup of the body, that the an existing being is annihilated. Okay, that existing being to the Hindus and to the um, Brahmins, rather, was not annihilated upon death. That existing being is the soul. The pressure point. <laughs> and and so, yes, he was accused of that. And um, but but not so strongly. It was almost like that it took the Brahmins eventually a thousand years to wipe out Buddhism and wipe out the whole system because, you see, they can make money if you've got a soul. If you've got a soul, that means that your soul is in danger of hellfire and you got to go pay the priest 
to clean you up, put you back on the right path at least to uh, suck up to this big being who's going to put you in hell or whatever. And this is the basic point about all religions is that you got to pay to play. And so um, the teaching of the Buddha goes against that. St- takes the livelihood right away from the Brahmins. Dana. Well, that's generosity based upon wisdom, if we're lucky. Ah. Or, it's based, ah, or it's based upon greed, otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. But Christian uh, is often based upon ill will, fear, uh, and have to suck up to the, to the being or the deity. So if you think of the of comma, the comma machine, do you think of it in the sense of I'm going to get caught or do you have the sense of I'm going to be rewarded? That in fact, we, one of the ways that we can look at this is, is that when we do a, a bad deed, when we hurt someone, when we cause suffering, it's sort of like taking out a loan that we owe. We owe the cosmos something. But if we pr- perform an act of generosity, if we help someone, if we do a good deed, then that's sort of like um, spending money rather than going into debt. We sort of pay it out. And so in this regard, we wind up um, being afraid that those debts that we've accumulated are going to come true. But the other way around is, is that, no, I've let out all of this money. I've been giving my money to my friends when I need some. It'll come back to me. And so this is a better way of looking at karma, is, is that we, we create comic debts one way or the other. And if we uh, always are willing to pay out, then that actually engenders a feeling of wealth. But of course, I'm going to keep paying out. I enjoy paying out. I feel wealthy when I do that. I've got certainly enough. And so this feeling of wealthy is exactly opposite of the feeling of selfish. Oh, I don't have enough. Oh, poor me. How dare my brother come ask me for a $500 loan? Rather than 500? Yeah, sure, we can do that. So, uh, this is the kind of attitude that we recognize newly that we've always got a choice about. But when we are stuck in the sense of a self or a soul, or this is who I am, or a particular personality view, then that makes it hard for us to change. And so that's one of the dangers then of people believing in things like reincarnation. Now, in the sense of how we're talking is, is that whether reincarnation actually exists or not is irrelevant to how I'm going to spend this particular moment. Moment by moment by moment. The deep, dark past is irrelevant. I've got to deal with right now. And I can't blame right now on a deep, dark past. If you point to that, people become very protective. Ah, you know why they're protecting? Because they're trying to protect themselves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if I'm not going to be reborn after I'm dead, 
then what's to become of me? The answer to that is dead. Get over it. Enjoy the fact that you're dead, or at least enjoy the fact that you're dying, because when you're dead, you're not going to even be able to enjoy then. So the best thing to do is to enjoy the process while you're checking out. Is there a complete source of uh, trans tr translation that is appropriate to convey that kind of meaning? Because with all this monastery, monk, and so on, I mean, that's not really helpful because it just punches the same spot over and over again, and people don't, don't recognize the errors in that. Um, well, it's really easy to understand that people can become threatened. This is part of the way that you can see it is, is that the, the Christians really hate the atheist because the atheist um, challenge everything that they believe, everything they think is important. And yet the funny thing is, is that the, the atheist, uh, this is done county by county rather than state by state to get a little bit better. But by and large and in general, those counties that are atheist in majority will have less all kinds of crime, less domestic violence, less drunk, less um, uh, drug usage, uh, less robberies, etc. like that. And those counties that are more religion and evangelical on a scale, not black or white, but on a scale, the more religious the counties are, the higher the crime rate, the higher the uh, uh, domestic violence, especially. The, the confession right. system. Pardon? The confession system. You can Please. make amends if you if you confess in a in a uh, secluded environment to someone who's who's uh, licensed to do that, and then you're free of of guilt. Yes, that's that's so that's people true. do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. There's another quality to it, and that is, is that if the people believe that bad things are going to happen to them because they've already got the original sin, you know, they're broken from birth and they mm. haven't quite gotten this suck up to God kind of thing going for them yet. And so they wind up now kind of in the idea that they're in danger of hellfire. Well, if I'm in danger, go get a gun. And so those, <laughs> I mean, this is the mentality when you feel afraid, but you're not sure what you're afraid of, then you'll go to do stupid things to feel protected. And even though you can have a whole house full of guns, you still don't feel safe. In fact, the guys who have a whole house full of guns probably is a pretty insecure person. Because every gun he bought wasn't enough yet for him to feel safe. Yeah, it's not very safe for us to be around people like that. That's the problem. Ah, well, as you can see, I'm not wearing any body armor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, but you're, you're right, Veda, to point out that it is an unpopular thing 
even in Buddhist circles, to say, oh, rebirth and reincarnation, number one, nobody knows. You don't know for sure. Anybody who says, oh, rebirth, rebirth, this, that, and they can talk about it, and you say, yeah, but you don't know for sure. You have never actually been dead long enough to figure it out. So you don't know. And just because you're dead doesn't mean then that now you're going to have access to huge amounts of information that you don't have access to when you're alive. Hmm. So the next point on that is, is that because you don't know, if you believe that it does and it interferes with your ability to change, then it's actually more of an albatross than it is just a stupid belief. And so it's actually better for you to put it into the category of not true or not false, because we don't know that it's false. We really don't know. But what we can do is recognize that because we don't know, that means that we've got no evidence. And if there is no evidence at all, that kind of makes it irrelevant because you're not going to change your behavior one way or the other based upon whether it's true or not, because you don't know. Nobody does. And so it becomes actually, in reality and logically, it's irrelevant. So now that we can put it into the category of relevant, now we don't have to go according to the dictates of these beliefs that lock you into and make you something in particular. So let's look at that for just a moment. And that is uh, in the in the way that the Buddha talks about it, about the first and the second and the third fetters, the fetters that are based upon knowledge rather than deliverance, that we have to have the knowledge about how to practice mm. first. And having those three knowledges is the basis of becoming the sotapad. And in fact, are often uh, referred to as those three things, but it's actually quite possible for someone to understand those three things thoroughly and still not be sotapod. In fact, you can understand and know those three things thoroughly and hate it. And wipe (laughs) out people who believe that kind of stuff because my daddy can't make any money off of those people. (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) All right. So that. So just because we understand these three knowledges doesn't really mean that we're on the path. But we can, in fact, say that this is the foundation of the path. So let's look at these three things, especially the first two, because the important point that I want to make is, is that when we ask the question, who am I? It has an actual answer to it. Who am I has an answer to it. It's who I am supposed to be. Or a better way of saying it for understanding is, is that who we are is our response to all of our rights, rules, rituals, supposed to things about how things are supposed to be. This is in the Buddha uh, parlance is is called the Sila Bhatta Paramasa. You can see the word Sila in there. It's morality. It's our fixed morality is what defines who we are. But there's more to it than that, because not only is it who who we are by definition, because of the rules is how we respond to that. 
An example is, is that the rule comes up, oh, I'm supposed to be on a diet, or oh, you've gotten so fat, go on a diet. And then the inner child, the feeling mechanism, is going to respond to that. You're darn tootin' we are, we're going on a diet is one response. The other response is, oh, I want donuts. Okay, and then when we have that, that means that we're a crowd inside, that we are not unified. And so this is um, what I mean by the definition of who we are is both the rules that we carry and our response to the rules that we carry and make up for ourselves. And, and that's what defines who we are. But that does not define a soul and it does not define a self. It merely defines a personality view. And when you recognize that this personality view is not fixed, it's malleable. It can be modified, it can be changed, and it can be changed in two ways. One is we can begin to change the rules to get more appropriate, more wise rules. And the other one is we can change the way that we feel about it. We can change both sides of this equation. And that, in fact, in Anapanasati is exactly what we're doing. We're changing both sides of this equation. We're beginning Circumstance to and decision. Yes, exactly. We, we begin to start with the, uh, with the decisions. And then eventually our decisions take over the circumstances. But that's real wisdom. Real wisdom is when we choose the circumstances. And then in the correct circumstances, we still have time to make decisions. <laughs> but today's decision might infect tomorrow's circumstances. Mm. And so that's the wisdom that we have is to recognize that we can change with our decisions tomorrow's circumstances. An example of that and almost a confession the first time I was on this island was 1984, and I made a decision then on the spot that this was the place to be, and that I'm coming back. And then I did. <laughs> okay, so that was the kind of a decision that changed circumstances. And that happens with every job that you take or every job that you quit, et cetera, like that, that we make a, a decision that changes our circumstances. And if we do it, it wisely, it it came with all the little factors that led to you uh, coming there, so mm -hmm. that it became so that so that cum accumulate accumulated over time. Precisely, uh, and what ha and what accumulated was my confirmation bias. Mm. That's what accumulated was the confirmation bias. I kept it, it kept accumulating. Things kept work out of it, you know, kept uh, moving the needle of that compass in this particular direction. And so, but the point that I'm making here is, is that yes, but this was all done consciously when most people do it unconsciously. They make decisions not recognizing where they're going, which direction they're going in. And so, this is part of what we're practicing is to start changing our decisions right here, right now, so that we can be more integrated, so that we can, in fact, start changing the rules 
from, oh, I've got to, I got to eat. You know, the, uh, the, the rules, if you don't work, you don't eat. And recognize that I'm not eating right now and I'm doing well. <laughs> that we begin to stop being afraid. Then, in fact, the whole society wants to keep us afraid because that's how we're controlled. We're controlled through our fear. And so when you're no longer afraid, why? Because fear is a decision. It's almost never a circumstance. Sometimes it is a circumstance, but that's because you've been really stupid lately <laughs> and wind up in a circumstance that you didn't wisely get yourself into. But never mind, most of the time when we're afraid is decisional based upon a kind of a thought. Like an example would be the water bill comes in and without even opening the envelope, we feel bad. We start thinking about all of these bills when it's just one bill. <laughs> Instead of saying, oh, I've got that. No problem. We got the bills. We got them kicked. Now, two different guys can have the same circumstances with the same bank accounts, but one makes the decision to feel bad when the water bill comes and the other one makes a decision to feel good about the water bill when it comes in. Their choice. And that's what the Buddhist teaching is all about. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes a big point about this. That this is choice. And that choice actually is um, uh, uh, manifest as right noble effort. That that's how we're making that choice. But how do we know what choice to make is because of right view. We saw what was going on. We saw the dissatisfaction. And now we're going to make a change to it to make it satisfying. Like the thought of, oh, I've got to write that email can come to, oh, well, I can do that later. Right now, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy life. I don't have to worry about that email. Don't have to do it today. I'll do it later. Okay, so in this regard, postponing things is breaking those rules that we've got in the mind. Oh no, you're supposed to go do that email. Start thinking about that email again. <laughs> and then I never understood the the connotation of procrastination. Well, procrastination has various qualities to it and the way that we normally use procrastination is people putting off and not doing the things they don't want to do. <laughs> which means they're also breaking the rules that they've got in their own mind because everybody's got the job to do it. Don't procrastinate, okay? And yet we put things off because we're trying to avoid disaster. We're trying to avoid bad feelings, feelings of fear and failure. But when we... I never uh, looked at it that way, you know? This is this is the thing. I, I saw the, the mirrored... Uh, let's say um, the expectation of this of the surroundings reflecting that it's not good to be procrastinating uh, yeah, in, that's in any case. <laughs> I never understood that, so it never okay. really took a, took a big toll on me, but eventually. If you're living in a system that is built upon those kinds of rules, you're, yeah, 
The, and the Germans is, have a bad dose of it. In fact, all of the Eastern Europeans have got a really heavy, bad dose of this. Uh, of this. Mm. Uh, of this. Uh, don't procrastinate. Buck up. Do your job. Yeah, I don't care if you like it or not. Do what you're told to do. You know, this is very, very strong uh, uh, mentality. But it's it's not unique. Every uh, region of the world has their own kind of version of this. But that's what makes the teachings of the Buddha so radical. You think that it's radical to teach all oh, that rebirth and reincarnation in heavens and hells and all of that is kind of irrelevant. Wait till you get a load of why don't we <laughs> stop working so hard and start enjoying our life? Why don't we become lazy? Why don't we move into a really cheap bungalow or maybe a cheap uh, water temple or whatever, get our food free off of the street and just hang out for the rest of our lives? Why not do that? It sounds enjoyable. People who live in cities, they don't like that. They don't want to support. You're not going to get any of my food. I had to work hard for my food. <laughs> That's why it's so hard to establish a uh, what in, in Western society and then the whole the whole uh, system of walking uh, with a bowl and things like that. Then double congratulations to Achan Chai and his crowd with Achan Sumedho, Achan Amaro, Achan Pisano, because <laughs> they're actually actually establishing that hip hip array yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But there's the other door. And that is, is that there's the Asian watch that are already established all over the West. And all we have to do is get you guys to walk right in, sit right down and have a ball there and forget about mm -hmm. all of this work that you've been doing for your whole life because you're not satisfied with that already. That's why you're here talking about the Dhammas because you're dissatisfied. That's why <laughs> the Buddha talks about um, right view comes first. If you can't see dukkha, then there's no chance of you doing anything about it. The, the Four Noble Truths sounds ridiculous to you. But in people who in fact do, that cannot see dukkha, we put labels on them like psychopath. They blame other people for all the problems in the world. They never see themselves as a fault. And the whole point about dukkha that they can't see is under the definition of their own personal dissatisfaction. If that we personality all personality view. Yeah, go ahead. Beta. If, 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 if we all, everyone who's listening now, if we all could just meet up together, have a ball together, just sit together, smile and, and <laughs> breathe and enjoy the view that would be more worth in a minute than two years of Skyping together. All right. Well, the porch is open. Then, in <laughs> fact, it's been quite busy recently. Is that not right, Laurent? <laughs> yeah, Laurent's on a hiatus from Copangan. He's in Malaysia for a month or so. And by the way, the reason part of the reason is, is that uh, all of the hotels, all of the rent houses, everything is solidly booked out. This is the first time that that's ever happened. I mean, Copangan was really caught with their pants down after COVID. They were not COVID. prepared for how many <laughs> Varong show up. 
<laughs> ready to party. <laughs> so come party on my porch. Everybody's welcome. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, Veda, all we do have is the videos here on Skype, and it's a whole lot better than nothing. Yes, 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 yes. This is a whole lot better than nothing. Uh, but then you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I'd be able to get that joke in there someplace. <laughs> okay. Uh, we can rephrase it so that people get it. You haven't seen emptiness yet. You haven't seen sunyata yet. You haven't seen nothing yet. Now, that's in fact what the self really is. There is nothing to it. There is no self there. What does happen is the process of selfishness. But self as a noun doesn't exist. It's not there. It's a manufactured or a creation of the mind. And we use language like I, me, and mine. But in fact, our language is proliferated with it in the sense of pronouns. That's one of the things interesting about the uh, Thai language. They don't use pronouns very often unless they really have to specify, like it's a court document or something. But other than that, pronouns, I mean, uh, Pinai could be, um, where are you going? Or can I go with you? Or... Uh, where where have I been? You know that kind of stuff. It's it's a uh, kind of general, and it depends upon the context because there's no pronouns in there. So uh, I think that that's possibly uh, a, a result of Buddhism over the centuries, kind of taking the self out of things. But that's one of the things that I've been practicing for years. When I say I've been practicing, I have to use that kind of language. But I'd like to introduce the idea that there's a Dhamma language and that Dhamma language, we tend to not use pronouns. Or when we use pronouns, we tend to use we's and us's rather than I's and me's and mine's, that we see each other as a group, as a community, that we're part of a family. That that's how the Thai people see it. They see things as part of a family, that I'm, a, I'm not a whole clock on my own, tick-tock, tick-tock, telling time. I'm nothing but a cog. And if I am a shiny, well-oiled, properly uh, maintained clog, then the bigger clock will work well. And this is a kind of an attitude change. This coming out of that idea of me or selfishness into being a part of something bigger. Or the joke is, is that when the Dalai Lama was at the UN in New York, he went out on the street to the street vendor and asked for a hot dog and says, make me one with everything. Mm. Buddhist joke there. <laughs> which, which is back to that atmos that we're talking about. So the Buddha says then that we're not separate from the atmosphere, that we're part of the atmos, that we're not Atta on our own. That there's no little me here that's worth fiddling with. 
And yet we all, from time to time, come up with our own self-importance. They're especially true because we're often trained that way. We train our kids to think of themselves as being special, of being highly competitive and a winner and that kind of stuff. And then when we don't live up to that, then we feel like a loser. Somehow or another, we all wind up feeling like victims and losers or whatever. And we get into that mentality, partly because the rules that we set are set too high. That as we grow up, so do our rules. When we are little kids, we take on the rules of the household and the family. But as we grow up, we inflate our rules. An example of that is, is has any of you ever walked back into a house as an adult that you lived in when you were a little kid and you remember it well? except that you remember that house of being a whole lot bigger than it is now. <laughs> Why? Because your, your mentality uh, and your perception has changed. So that's what happens with our rules, is that we inflate the rules to the point that they're beyond our grasp. And we look for perfection. And then when we uh, don't want to find the faults that we have inside, we want to hide from them. This is when we start lying to ourselves and becoming false and whatever is because we're not living up to our own standards, our own rules that we made up anyway. Now, there are different expressions, you know, because people are very uh, different in the way they are morons. <laughs> right, depending upon our set of standards and set of rules. And sometimes some people have rules. You're supposed to be a moron. And so they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that is will go around calling their kids moron until the kid starts to believe it. Mm -hmm. um, or he'll dad will go around the house with his right arm high in the air like he's going to hit you. And then you feel like you're being persecuted because you're in danger all the time. So there's many, many things that we pick up as kids. I couldn't go through them all, uh, <laughs> but everybody's got their own uh, uh, ways of remembering how we pick up our load of baggage. But the Buddha says, set that baggage down. Stop going by your old rules and your old standards especially in the sense of what work there is yet to do. Just sit down and recognize that you've already done enough work, at least for a while now. You haven't been rewarded for the work that you've done, so sit down and just enjoy the fact that you've got nothing to do for a while. Go absolutely against being told you got to stay busy. Busy, busy, busy. You got to keep, you know, the, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You've heard that, okay? They want to keep you busy. They want to keep it at any Catholic school. They want to keep the nuns and the priests and the kids in the schools. They want to keep them busy. Because if those people take time to figure out that all they're doing is just busy work, they may stop doing some of that busy work and start sitting down and enjoying their life instead. And so that's part of the reason why the actual teachings of the Buddha is radical. It's not because of the philosophy of don't believe in airy fairies. Mm -hmm. Don't believe in, in rebirth and reincarnation and magic and all of that. Let's get down and feel good. The actual issue that general uh, 
religion, actually the, the whole society has against religion, or at least against Buddhism, is because they're a bunch of layabouts. They don't do nothing. All they can claim is spiritual. Oh, we're spiritual people. Oh, we sit around in meditation and we're just so goody two shoes, you know. Beat us. <laughs> and some people will, and other people can see the actual value. But in the West, they're not going to see. In fact, um, Buddhism has quite a lot of baggage coming with it that didn't exist with Buddhism. One of them is the out-and-out disdain and hatred for the Catholic Church that has existed for centuries. I mean, they had a hundred years' war at one time over it. There's still a lot of animosity. In fact, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who won the election in 1960, the biggest uh, thing the Republicans had against him was that he was Catholic. Oh, he's going to go do what the Pope tells him to do. He's not an American at all. Right? And so, so, they, so and they, get away, they get away with that kind of stuff. But now we have to deal with that baggage within Buddhism. So what is a helpful way to understand then, and when does it come in, uh, duty of the Dharma? Or well, to the it, Dharma? it may take a while for the society to actually wake up to the fact that these monks are high quality human beings, that that's what sets them apart, is that they're nobly minded, they're honorable, that they don't cheat, they don't lie. They don't want anything from you because they're already satisfied. So that means that the advice that you get to them, get from them, is often spot on, and that's where how the uh, the Thai people treat the monks in Thailand is uh, elder advisors of highest quality. Now that's true whether the the actual monk in front of you is worthy of that or not. Many times they are, and many times they're not. 20 so is not uh, 20 is just the just the number it depends on how you spend those 20 years exactly and it also depends upon the surroundings because you can have just your ordinary 20 year old brat walk into a noble watt and 20 years later <laughs> he's noble or you can have a nobly minded young uh, brat walking into an ordinary watt and 20 years <laughs> later he's ordinary <laughs> Yeah. It really has to do with your surroundings. This is why the uh, bringing in Sangha for the West is so valuable, it's so important. That we have to make friends with other people. We have to practice doing that because we're really unskilled in friendship. Oh, yeah. Western people, this is almost the, the opposite. Huh? Mm -hmm, that we're by nature unfriended with one another. They're stranger, therefore they must be dangerous. Well, it's not even Western people. That's that's also also. It's human. Uh, it's human. It's human. But you can change that from. Uh, let us talk about it at least in respect to the Thai culture, is that the Thais are genuinely happy and interested to see strangers and foreigners. The same thing is true in India, big time. It's quite a piece of entertainment for somebody to come in that's dressed differently than everybody in town dresses. <laughs> okay, 
so there's a new source of entertainment and possibly even some tips. And so uh, it's a different mentality. But in the West, because of the Muslim invasion, because of immigration, because it's always poor people who have to immigrate. The wealthy stay in place because they're the one that caused the problem in the first place. And so it's only mm. poor people that have to move around and the poor are not welcome just by the nature. Oh, I'm better than they are. <laughs> yeah, you can have one Ukrainian come on the block, but a hundred of them, nah, not a chance. <laughs> um, so anyway, that whole point that I was making about um, that Buddhism has that uh, the quality of enjoying life now and stop worrying about the future and stop worrying about getting so much done that in fact a buddhist country will often be looked down on by the western society look how many big towers and how big our uh, our cities are and everything like this and you're just a bunch of uh, you know cow farmers then in fact the dogs still bark at the water buffalo that passed by my yard from time to time. That's the kind of lifestyle that I live. <laughs> How long has it been since you've seen a water buffalo? <laughs> the good stuff doesn't get uh, trend translated correctly, and it's uh, it's not shown in the media. It's not shown uh, anywhere. I mean, even people who have connections to other countries and do actually something in real life to to connect with others it's it's always in this uh, frame of reference of uh, suspicion and how can i gain the most of it and things mm -hmm. like that so how how should people how should people lay down their banners and their identifications and their symbols if 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 this is everything they they see in 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 themselves and around them, so okay, that's probably here's, the biggest the biggest thing. Veda, here's the actual most correct answer to that: is is that you're looking at it from a crowd of people, people in general, and the way to look at it is each unique individual person that you come into contact to is a dama moment. Yeah. Yeah, one statement at a time, one smile at a time, one little right now at a time. And when you start to act noble around others, it will be seen. That in fact, many I'm already times, exhausted. <laughs> see what I mean? I'm, I mean, you are, you're already there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, of course, because it's 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 obvious. You don't even need the Dharma if you're if you're looking what's happening. I mean, mm -hmm. this is what I don't understand in people. They, they're, they're, they're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And just you like them, you did, just, just like you did. What is just going like on? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? Come on, you just need to sit down and look at what's happening. And there is your solution. <clears throat> yes, some of them will and some of them won't. Most of them won't. Yeah. But here's something yes. that we can look at, and that is, is that since Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has opened up 
the noble Dhamma, the super mundane Dhamma to within Thailand. He has had, en- not him personally, but the teaching has had an enormous success, an enormous impact upon the nation of Thailand. But now we're actually bringing that Dhamma to the West, that this is what Achan Po has asked me to do, but I'm not the only one that he has. There are several. Santicaro has got a, a, a retreat center in Wisconsin um, and, and others. So the Dhamma is getting out. The super mundane Dhamma yeah. is no longer being held quite so secretively. And with just you six people right here on, the, on this group, it's going <laughs> to continue to spread. You cannot stop spreading the Dhamma because you're beginning to live it. It's becoming part of your life, part of your breath, part of the, your attitude, part of the smile on your face. Everything kind of fits together to make you Dhamma. And when you associate with other Dhamma friends, that's going to just deepen and become even more satisfying. So this is why we need the Sangha is to perpetuate this noble Dhamma. And it's already doing that. That, in fact, I think that people are making better progress because we do have these Sangha groups and also the uh, the, the Skype uh, calls where people will call each other or text each other. I think that everybody's moving along faster now than they did when it was only one by one they would call me. Now we've actually got <laughs> Sangha going and I can see how valuable it is. And so the little community that we have together is also going to grow. Each one of you is going to have more and more of a Dhamma community wherever you go. The people that you're associated with. Laurent, I know for sure that you've had enormous impact upon your friends. But that's just how it goes. That we're we're beginning to spread the noble Dhamma, which can be uh, uh, said so simply that everybody understands what is the entire teaching of the Buddha? Oh, don't worry, be happy. That's the whole teaching. But look how much <laughs> is built into that. Don't worry, be happy. The worry, what is that? That's the hindrances. That's the uh, the worry, worry. It's the agitation. It's all of that kind of stuff. And just be happy. Get rid of the dukkha and come into dukkha naroda. So it's the entire teaching of the Buddha right there. Don't worry, be happy. Can you do that? Can you do it again? (laughs) Can you do it again? That's the whole trick is rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. We have to keep practicing over and over again because more than likely, especially because of the society we live in, we're going to go back down to ground zero. We're going to go right back into the sewer that we came out of. Imagine that, (laughs) cleaning yourself, you know, coming out of the sewer, taking a really good breath, washing and cleaning yourself and putting on incense or perfumes or whatever, and you're just so beautiful and you walk right back up and jump right back into that sewer. And we do that over and over and over again. Uh, so what we need to do is to take that bath, clean ourselves off, and then hang out with some other people who just had a bath. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Or yeah, you can yeah. walk around in public for a while with all of those people who just crawled out of their sewer and say, hey, man, here's a bath for you. <laughs> Clean your mind. Don't worry. Be happy. Throw all of that worry out. But the whole point of it is, is that most people say, oh, I can't. It's too hard. And the answer is, it's really easy. You just have to do it over and over again. You got to practice. But as you practice, even practicing music, you get good at it, and then you can play music. Well, here we're learning how to play life itself, because life is a musical instrument. It's a dance. It's a joy. Enjoy your own performance. Live a happy life. Don't worry. Be happy. That's all there is to it. And if we can start spreading that much of the message, the rest of the teaching of the Buddha will follow along. So that's the spearhead is to teach people you don't have to work to be happy. You could stop work. You could stop anger. You could stop frustration. You could stop all of that stuff. And just be happy. Practicing over and over and over again. But the ones who are most likely to not believe that we can do this are the ones who believe in rebirth and reincarnation. Oh, I'm stuck with my comma. Yes, you are. Get unstuck this time and then get unstuck again and then get unstuck again because the comma is going to keep coming back and keep sticking. But you can unstick yourself when you remember that you can. And so you're not stuck with it. You do not have a destiny. You are not pre-programmed completely. You can reboot. That's the teaching of the Buddha. You can change. Always your choice. Yeah, that's good. good. <laughs> and so we don't have to worry about a self. It's nothing to it. It's actually a side issue. This, whether there is a self or not, it's the same kind of side issue as um, rebirth and reincarnation. It's, an, it's not important. It's not a part of the teaching of the is teaching Dukkha Dukkha Naroda of don't worry about that stuff be happy here's an example do you know what a sala is we have salas uh, uh, Marcus describe the, the, 10 words the, of sala like the, a gazebo or a the building kind of thing yeah mm -hmm. gazebo. Like open air open air yeah okay now here's the point With about the stools as the, as the ceiling and things like that now it's got a it's got a roof, okay? Maybe may a thatched roof, and it may have a floor, and it may not. But it does have the poles to hold the roof up, and yeah. it's shaped place, okay? So that's the whole quality. And the point that I'm talking about is is that all your ordinary people come with windows and doors, saying, "Where do we put the doors? And where do we put the windows?" And so we've got to take all of this time to describe the place that there is nothing there for you to put your doors and windows and rebirth and reincarnation and belief systems and uh, power and all of that. There is no walls for you to decorate. <laughs> There's nothing there. Except holding crumble, up. Crumble, crumble. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't crumble. That's the whole point is that Thailand is just full of salas. They're, they're yeah, that's the expression thousands. of the fear. 
<laughs> in fact, m many of the, uh, um, the the school bus bus stops in the countryside is a sala. Yeah. Even a letter of their alphabet. Yeah, and given a letter of the alphabet, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so that's the whole quality that we're looking for. Then is is that one of the walls that we put up, one of the boundaries we put up, is a job, a house, as opposed to have this and that. And now we're learning to take those walls down. We don't need doors and windows anymore because we've knocked down the whole wall. The whole rule is gone. <laughs> And now I can see in 360 degrees, I can see everywhere. And so this is a way of thinking about putting your life is to turn, tear, tear the walls down, tear all the rules out that define who you are. <laughs> That's who you are is the walls you put up, the boundaries, the rules you make for your life. And most of these questions that people come in and ask is, well, where do I put up the windows and the dressers and the uh, uh, doors and all of that kind of stuff? And the answer is, we've got no walls. <laughs> <laughs> Laurent, go ahead. Yes, so you, you told us the, the only rule that source having is a uh, Duca Duca Nimrota. So only using that rule. But uh, I'm guess there is a wrong way uh, of using it too. Like if you're saying, okay, uh, maybe there is confused way of putting rules around Dhamma and, uh, you know, straight okay. well, All right. Part of the reason that we make the rules is for protection. We follow the rules because we can avoid danger of being punished. So we need those rules. We thought we did because that provide it provides safety and security. However, when we come out naturally, the way that we're practicing here of coming out of our insecurities, then that means we don't need the walls anymore for protection. We're already protected. We're not afraid. So I don't have to perform up to a rule or a standard in order to fit in, I already fit in. And it's also imperfect because it's a false sense of security. Well, actually, it's not a sense of security in that regard because that, that can be false when the dangers are real. Yeah. The answer is, yeah, is yeah, that it's the exactly. other way around. The, the, the dangers are not real. And we feel afraid anyway, so it's just a false sense of danger rather than a false sense yeah. of security that in fact we want to use wisdom to find the, the danger when it's existing. That the, the yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, the circumstance or the, the danger in this case is the difference between the circumstance and the decision. Most danger is decisional and very, very rarely is it actually circumstantial because we're good enough to avoid that area of Bangkok, and therefore no clearer. <laughs> so in that regard, we can say that, yeah, I don't have to go there. If I go there, then I'll have to deal with decisions about danger. But if I'm wise enough to choose my circumstances, then I don't have to be afraid. Now I can feel unafraid and let my walls down. This is one of the reasons why it's actually better for people to practice out in the wilderness 
go camping, personal camping, go to a hut, an empty uh, room um, under a tree and get away from it all. Why? Because when we're in a retreat, we carry a whole bunch of retreat rules with us. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. At this hour, you got to be there, et cetera, like that. So we wind up having to follow a lot of rules instead of just getting away from everything and sit down and be happy. So the the uh, um, the retreats have dangers built right into them. A lot of people see a retreat as dangerous. And one of the scariest things that they think about in there is myself and how bad I'll do in this retreat. They start looking at their rules and things like that and start feeling bad. But if you're out in the wilderness all by yourself, then we generally don't apply those rules. We can actually leave the open space open and begin to enjoy without having to rule, oh, you're not meditating enough. You should be meditating 18 hours a day and here you're only doing it 12. What are you doing, you slacker? You know, that's the kind of thing that we can kind of take away and just enjoy being in nature because that itself is a meditation is getting the mind in that state of enjoyment. Yeah. So a lot of the time we have these rules and we don't even know it. And yet these rules define who we are, whether we know it or whether we like it or not. So as we begin to see these rules and begin to drop them away, that's when the personality really starts to change because you're not who you thought you were. That you can scrub Microsoft Windows, uh, excuse me, uh, Office right off your computer and start using Neat or Open Office or any other piece of software. You know, you don't, you're not geared or you're not wired that you have to do it according to this set of rules or standards or application or whatever. We've got choices. Which means we now make our whole mind, like a laptop, a new toy to play with. And so you can experiment. Well, what does feel good? What do I like? What kind of words can I use? I don't have to use Damarato's words. I can find my own words <laughs> for telling myself how good I feel. That in fact, my, my words have become almost a rule. They've gotten kind of bound. There's only just a small set of them, but you guys could figure out a whole lot of really good ways to cheer yourself up. Like something like, hey, Granny's dead now. <laughs> so whatever it is, it can cheer us up. That's the way to get started. We're not going to stay all that cheered up and giddy all the time, but we learn to, uh, to control the mind by being able to do that. So if you can make yourself feel really happy, then you can make yourself feel really peaceful. It's really hard to make yourself feeling peaceful when you're coming out of bad feelings. Coming up from bad feelings to neutral, can't do that. we got to go all the way yeah. up to the top of the mountain and then let it subside. And so do what you this can. Whole, this whole bodhisattva thing, this whole bodhisattva thing is a very uh, sticky, sticky substance. Um... 
when I use the word bodhisattva, I'm thinking about it in a particular context. And that <laughs> is, do we care only about our students and do we care only about the Dhamma, which is the bodhisattva? Or do we not give a flying rip about anything anymore? And that's the Arahat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if we only care about our students, if we only care about the Dhamma, if the only thing we've got in life is our our friends and helping them, then that's the Bodhisattva. Ah. And that's a better place to be than the Arahat. And that, in fact, an individual can be one in the morning and the other in the afternoon. <laughs> That when you're with people, care about them. But when you're alone, don't give a flying rip about anything. Just be happy. So that would be one of those expressions that we can have is take a deep breath. And, I don't care about a flying. How to say it? I don't care about anything. I don't give a flying rip. <laughs> that's, a, now that's a good one. Okay. Almost a Japanese <clears throat> haiku, an American haiku. I don't give a <laughs> I can see the image. So that's the mentality that we're looking for, is the mentality of getting the Dhamma on the mind so that the only thing that we care about is the Dhamma. The only thing we care about is Sangha. The only thing we care about is awakening. We take that as the refuge, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. That's all we've got on the mind. But that is a preliminary because if we could drop everything but that, then dropping that is easy and possible to do too. But if you've got 10,000 things to drop, you need a <laughs> you need a spoon or something to help you drop it. Get throw it all out. No, we've got to we've got to narrow down. That's also the way that we would practice the jhana, is that we got to get the mind in wholesome thoughts one after another after another before we can get the mind to stop altogether. And so when we get in fact the mind into one wholesome thought after another after another, and we're living our life like that, that winds up being caring only about the dhamma and caring only about our friends. So that is the path to the bodhisattva, is these wholesome thoughts, one after another, after another. And pretty soon that's all you've got for your friends. You don't care about society anymore because society is going to have to take care of itself. But if anybody shows up to talk about the Dharma, they're not part of society anymore. They're my good friend. <laughs> so. Um, I think that we've kind of covered it. This is not exactly the talk that I thought that I would be giving, but this one's good enough. <laughs> Kat, do you have any uh, closing remarks? No, no, that was just a really nice uh, talk. I really like this talk today. Yeah. Well, one thing actually was um, one thing was actually. Um, Earlier, you were talking about identity and the boundaries we set between each other. And I think that 
they really the only problem in the world is this identity problem like this my family your family me versus you like that's really it but yes and where does the identity come from the set of standards the set of rules the way that things are supposed to be the way that we were taught when we were kids that's our standards and that becomes our identity and that's where the the um territorial instinct comes in and causes conflict and tribalism mm. is because our rules are different mm. and instead of trying to fix everybody else's rules so that they can form with mine the better thing to do is just to scrap it all and start all over again <laughs> to tear the walls down yes yeah, so you do it first within yourself and then i think mm -hmm. people see that rather than you going to do it with them when you haven't done it in yourself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so when we open up and take down our boundaries and are still happy and go lucky and fearless and and everything is sweet and light, people are attracted to that. People really are attracted to that. You've heard that misery loves company. But company loves joy. <laughs> and so this is the way that we practice is first being joyful and friendly to ourselves on the inside be nurturing accept yourself warts and all that you're already okay you're already enlightened everything is hunky-dory no place to go and nothing to do don't have uh, granny's dead now you know all of that kind of happy thoughts get that going and pretty soon then then we could start living our lives as if it were true because it really actually is that we've actually been living a life how bad things are the reality is how nice it is i mean you're still alive you're still alive cat you're alive already don't you realize that <laughs> isn't that marvelous you're alive <laughs> you're not dead yet so you must have been doing something already. Okay. That's how we want to look at the past. Is that it, 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 at least it kept us alive. We're not dead yet. And when I can say, okay, here we go. We've got the new moment. This is it. Let's make the best of this moment because we're not going to have so many of them. Mm -hmm. Let's go make some friends. Let's go spread some joy. That's the way that we can start. And that's an attitude, which is also it's the same attitude as let's take these walls down. These walls that separate us. Take down these boundaries, find where your boundaries are, find out what walls you're making and take it down. Which was another way of saying that when you see that particular hindrance, when you see those thoughts that you're having, you can change them to happy thoughts. You'd be surprised at how many walls you've already constructed, thousands of them. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of number of walls to be taking down one at a time as they arise. Because those walls define who you are. And when you take the walls down, you're not that at all anymore personality view really the right personality view is is that each one of us is a moving target 
Everybody's a moving target. No one is fixed. No one is set. But many of us just keep going around in the same tight little circle over and over again. What is that? The boundaries. We keep bouncing off our own walls and stay stuck within a narrow confine. But when we start taking those boundaries down one thought at a time, that gives them some space. Freedom, they call it. Freedom. And here we find out that we were the ones who made the boundaries in the first place. So that's uh, the longer talk about anatta. Is that it's an actual practical application, but the real old problem teaching was the issue about of a soul that can't change. Once we recognize that you do have whatever you have, it can be changed. That's the issue of can you change or not? Because if you know you can change, and everyone here knows they change, you've already been practicing. You know you can change. You're already doing it. You know you can do this. And that knowledge that you know that you can do this is what's going to carry you forward deeper into the practice because you haven't seen the end of it yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, guys, this has been great. Anybody got any last comments? Marcus, you've been quiet the whole time. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you all too. Um, yeah, that's it. Nice to see you all. <laughs> nice to hear you. I can't see you guys. That's all right. We can't see you. <laughs> so how about you, Marcel? You have any last statements to make? Not really. It's like the more I nurture myself, the more I'm able to see the boundaries and the small criticisms and letting them go. I really like that. OK, we'll take a look. You'll find some, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, well, thank you so much. We'll see you later. Yeah, have a nice day. See you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. No, by the way, nobody asked me a question that I can say, oh, we'll talk about that next time. So we don't have one for next time, so we're, we're fresh. <laughs> Nothing right. to do and no place to go next time. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you soon. See you soon. Goodbye.